please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. Let me urge you to be reading in it at home. Let me urge you to be reading in it at home. If I could give you the key to success in life, would you use it? I believe this first chapter of Joshua gives us that key. You have the commissioning of Joshua to enter the land in verses 1 to 4. Verse 1, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people under the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said to Moses. The commissioning of Joshua to enter the land. Notice the designation of the land, the land which I do give them. That's good because of what the land represents spiritually or biblically. The land, from one standpoint, in the primary standpoint, represents heaven. Uh, the promised land is heaven. Egypt represents the unsaved state where you are in bondage, you're under a hard taskmaster, Satan, and judgment is coming. The angel of death is coming. And he will enter every home, and there will be death in every home where there's an older son. But God had provided a way to escape that judgment and to be delivered. That if you took a lamb on the 14th day of the seventh month and you placed that lamb's blood over your doorpost, uh, the angel of death would pass over your home and there would be escape from judgment. And uh, that was the same night that they were delivered from their bondage. Uh, when they placed that blood over their door and the angel of death passed over, he didn't pass over Pharaoh's house. And Pharaoh's son was killed and Pharaoh rose up and said, Out! Get out! Leave! As you've asked. And they're, they're released and they're on their way to the promised land. Of course, the lamb biblically represented Jesus Christ. And uh, that Passover was something they did in memory every year of their deliverance from judgment and from bondage. And it pointed toward the very day Jesus Christ would die, the 14th day of the seventh month, because he was the Lamb. Uh, that lamb had to be without spot or blemish because he would be without sin. None of its bones were to be broken because none of his bones would be broken. This was to be done in the evening. He would die in the evening, in the afternoon. And uh, so all these points of parallel. You remember Jesus pointed to, uh, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There's the real lamb. This other lamb's blood couldn't really save from God's judgment. 
it was of no value in and of itself, but it could do for a transaction between God and men, a very valuable transaction, where they were forgiven because of what lay ahead of it, the blood of Jesus Christ. Like paper money is of no value in and of itself, but it can do for a valuable transaction because of what lies behind it. What does lie behind it? It used to be uh, gold, but anyway... uh, uh, you uh, you have the picture here that God was drawing of the way of salvation. So, Canaan represented heaven. If you're a Christian, you're out of Egypt, you're on your way to the promised land of heaven. And uh, the Jordan River, which you crossed to get into the promised land, would picture death. Now, uh, there are those who wouldn't agree with that, good men, uh, men that I think very highly of, like Alan Redpath and Ian Thomas, writers like that, some of my favorites. They'd say, no, Frank, uh, heaven doesn't represent, uh, uh, Canaan doesn't represent heaven, it represents Christ right now. And entering the, what you have when you enter the spirit-filled life, you're a carnal Christian and then you die to self, that's Jordan, and you enter the spirit-filled life. And so it's something you you possess right now. And some Christians have entered it and some haven't. Well, no, that's not right. How do you know it's not right? Well, you always interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament. You come to the New Testament, look at Hebrews 3 and 4 and 1 Corinthians 10, and it doesn't interpret it that way. It interprets it as heaven. And those who died in the wilderness and didn't make it to the promised land, they weren't carnal Christians. They were hypocrites. They were people who were externally out of Egypt, but their heart was still in Egypt. That's like a person who's in the church, but his heart's in the world. A person whose heart's in the world, but their body's in the church, what happens when they die? They don't go to the promised land. Faith without works is dead. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was the true Lamb, who died for our sins. It's by grace. It's a gift. But true faith and true repentance, real surrender to Christ, results in true change, so that you are different from the world, and your heart's not in the world. Your heart is a new heart, and your heart longs to be holy. Now, you still have a sinful nature, but you have a new nature. And the new is the more powerful. And you have the Spirit of God dwelling within. And uh, so you live differently. You don't live perfectly, but you live differently. Now, uh, having said all that, let me confuse you. In a secondary sense, not the primary sense, but a secondary sense, the land of Canaan represents what we have in Christ right now. We are not in heaven, but we are seated in the heavenlies or in the heavenly places. At Ephesians 2.6. We're best blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Ephesians 1.5. In Christ... You and I, if you're a Christian, we have spiritual blessings. 
But you see, that's true of every Christian. Every Christian has those spiritual blessings. Every Christian is seated in the heavenlies. He's in a new realm. He's united to Christ. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there's a sense in which we're seated with Him by virtue of our relationship to Him. Just like if uh, Mrs. Clinton had stayed in Arkansas when her husband went to the White House, in a sense, she would be seated with him in the White House by virtue of her relationship to him and his position there. I'm not sure I should have used her for an example, but <laughs> at any rate, uh, uh, you have certain spiritual blessings that are yours. They're given to you. They're the land which I do give but you've got to possess them. What, uh, what are you uh, promised in Christ? Well, you're promised that sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law, you're under grace. Does sin have dominion over you? Is there some area of your life that sin is controlling? Your thought life? Your tongue? Uh, your business life? Uh, the way you uh, treat your parents? The way you treat uh, your wife or your husband? Anger? Is there some area of your life sin is controlling? Lust? Maybe? Uh, then you're not possessing your possessions. We're promised fruitfulness, that he that abideth in Christ, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Uh, what is the fruit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit, for one thing, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, faith, self-control. All those things are promised to us. How much joy are you experiencing? How much self-control? How much love? This uh, unselfish love. That uh, doesn't look on its own things, but on the things of others. Those are promised to us. We're promised power to witness to others. But we've got to possess our possessions. We've got to appropriate them by occupation. You notice what he said, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you. Here's the land, Joshua. Uh, you and all the folks, go in there and, and, and possess your possessions. But there was a problem. God said, I've given it to you. All you've got to do is go put your foot on it. problem is there was somebody standing there. Giants were in the land. High-walled cities were in the land. And there's opposition to you possessing your possessions. You have certain habits of the way you treat other people, the things you read, the things you look at, the things you say. And those are hard to defeat. You have the world around you, molding you, squeezing you into its mold, and that's hard. They're great, there's great opposition to your possessing your possessions, just like there was for them. The commission of Joshua to enter the land. Spurgeon who interpreted uh, the book as I'm interpreting the book. Uh, he says it like this. He says, Each blessing is yours, 
but the actual enjoyment of it will need a great struggle. But notice the commitment of God to overcome all opposition. Verse 5. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee, Joshua, all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so shall I be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. As I was with Moses. Think of how God was with Moses. Moses goes into Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. And Moses says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And Moses said, Lord, show him. And Egypt is reduced to ashes. Plague after plague comes. Was the Lord with Moses? They start out of the nation and they hit the Red Sea. And God says, lift up your rod and the sea parts. They get into the wilderness and people rebel against Moses and the earth opens up and swallows them. Was God with Moses? No man will be able to stand uh, before you. No man will be able to effectively oppose you, Joshua. As I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Goodness, what a promise. I used to read that and I used to say, my goodness, if God ever made me a promise like that, look out world, here I come. And then one day I read Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, which says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Wherefore, we may boldly say, I will not fear what man shall do to me. The writer of Hebrews takes this promise to Joshua and applies it to every Christian. Ralph Davis, the former professor of Old Testament at Reformed Seminary, in his book on Joshua, No Falling Word, says, Hear the promise, in, talking about in Hebrews, Hear the promise of Joshua 1.5 is applied to a Christian congregation. The promise of God's abiding presence in Joshua 1 is also for you and is the solution to the sin of covetousness and uh, discontent and so on. That promise is applied to every one of us. God says, I've given you the land. I've given you. You're seated in the heavenlies. You have all these blessings, this power, uh, this fruitfulness available to you, and I will be with you as I was with Moses, and I will help you possess the land. Now, that commitment's made to you. And uh, the promises include the power to overcome all enemies. Who are our enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world around us that is the opposite of the fruitfulness we talked about. The world that thinks that success in life is something totally different from what the scriptures would hold out. Uh, the world with all of its ungodliness you know, it has a veneer, but when you rub through the veneer, it's not too pretty. The world. That would allure you and squeeze you into its mold. The flesh, that part of you that still wants to follow the world, uh, 
and still wants your way and still has all kind of wrong attitudes and desires. And the devil, very real person, who knows just what temptation to trail by you. Those are our enemies, and they are far stronger than we are, but they're not stronger than he is. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. The promise to overcome all enemies, the presence of God at all times and all places. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The permanence of that doesn't mean there won't be any trials or any, any tragedies. They had tremendous tragedies and trials as we follow this along. Now we see the commission to enter the land. We see the commitment of God to overcome all their enemies, to be with them. The command to Joshua to be strong and courageous, verse 6. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people thou shalt divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers. Only be thou strong and very courageous. The requirement was to be strong and courageous. Why? Because he had to go out and fight. God's promise to be with him didn't preclude his having to fight, his effort. The two went hand in glove. It was as he went out and tackled these things that God would be with him. Uh, Spurgeon says that Joshua had to use that sword arm as hard as if the Lord hadn't been around. Now, uh, all the time that he goes out and tackles those high-walled cities and giants, he must do it relying on the Lord to enable him to overcome them. Now, this was corollary to God's promise of success. It says... You be strong and you will divide the land. You will conquer here. In uh, verse 9, Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Believe the promise and go out and tackle them. It was corollary to God's promise of success. It was necessary to God's condition of success. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou may prosper whithersoever thou goest. Uh, in verse uh, 8, Then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, then shalt thou have good success. In order to the condition of success here was obedience. Well, what is meant by success? What is it? What is success? You can't measure success by comparing yourself to someone else. You can't measure success by what you are. You're the you're CEO of your company. That doesn't mean you're success. Uh, you're a great athlete. That doesn't mean you're success. Uh, you graduated with a Ph.D. That doesn't mean you're a success. Success would have to do with occupying all the land that God had for me, appropriating all the fruitfulness he had for me. One day I'm going to get to heaven, and, and God's going to say, Frank, let me show you something. He's going to take me over and say, He's going to unroll a blueprint. He's going to let me show you what I was prepared to do with you. Here's what I was prepared to do with you at this point. 
but at this point, you wouldn't trust me. And here was what I was prepared to do at this point, but you had that sin you wouldn't give up. And here's what I was prepared to do at this point, but uh, you didn't have the courage to tackle it. And I'm going to cry. You remember what God told David? God said, David, I did this and this and this with you and for you, and I was going to do this and this and this. But you did this and this and this, and so I'm going to do this and this and this. Success has to do with appropriating all that he's prepared to use you for, to be through you. That's success. And the condition, obedience to the written law, seeking for no omission and no deviation. In uh, verse 7, Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou may observe to do according to all the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Obedience. And that requires courage. it, It requires courage as a young person to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to have sex with you. Well, everybody's doing it. Well, I'm not everybody. It requires courage as a businessman to say, no, we're not going to do that in this company. Well, if you don't, you won't be promoted. All right, I won't be promoted. But I'm not going to do that. It requires courage to stay in a marriage when you're very unhappy in that marriage. It requires courage not to run and do what the other kids are doing when your parents have told you not to. Uh, That takes real courage. Obedience to God's law. And uh, notice the co-command to Joshua to meditate in the Word of God. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, then shalt thou have good success. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You notice they had a book at that point. You read about the book in Exodus 17, where Moses would write in the book. And uh, they've, they've got a part of the Bible. We've got much more of the Bible at this point. Uh, That book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. It shall regulate everything you say and what you do. And you shall meditate therein day and night in order that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. Then you will make your way prosperous as you find God's will from God's Word and you meditate on these things and you reflect on these things. And you step out and you tackle them in God's power. Then you will experience success, says God. Uh, You may go through some tragedy. That's all right. Uh, You're doing God's will. He's using you in the ways that he wants to. Um, In his excellent book, Knowing God, Packer has a section where he discusses meditation. It says... How can we turn 
our knowledge about God into knowledge of God. The rule for doing this is demanding but simple. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter, a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works, ways, and purposes and promises of God. That's meditation. As you do that, you meditate and you obey. Then shalt thou make thy way prosperous. Then shalt thou have good success. So we need to spend time in the Word of God. Let me challenge you as you start this year off. Reflect on how much time am I really spending in the Word of God, getting it into my thinking, letting it affect the way I view things, the way I do business, the way I treat my family, uh, the way I, uh, what I read and so on, uh, getting it into my bloodstream. How much time am I really doing that? What, what ways are helping me? What's not helping me? What, what habit do I need to establish? Uh, for some years, I've used a little insert that we had in the bulletin last Sunday to read through the Bible in a year. Only I use it in the two-year thing now. Uh, we have those available in our information. That's just one of hundreds of ways that we can get in the Word of God and be reflecting on it. Uh, we've got many tools to help with that. Being in a small group is a tremendous help for that, where you're accountable to others. Um, let me challenge you to do that. And not just read it, but, but meditate on it. Uh, he says, do it, that you may obey, that you may be successful. I asked you earlier, if I could give you the key to success in life, would you use it? If you're not a Christian, of course, you're still in Egypt. You need freedom comes through the blood of the Lamb, comes through trusting in Christ and surrender to Him. That's the starting place for you. Um, let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, what category do you fall into? Are you uh, still in Egypt? Are you a hypocrite where you're externally out of the world and in the church you've made a profession of faith but your heart's still in the world and you need to really surrender your will to Christ and trust Him to change you? Are you a Christian but there's an area of disobedience uh, where you're not possessing your possessions? Uh, there's no real habit of meditating in His Word. Uh, there's no real Christian fellowship and growth from that interaction. Where are you? What would God have you to do? If you've never really made that step of surrender and trust, do that right now. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the Lamb of God for me. And I do trust you to cleanse me from my guilt and ask you to come and live in me and change me. I surrender to you. Amen.